This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Can you name this famous actor of the golden age of Hollywood? I know, I look vaguely familiar. Yes. You feel you've seen me somewhere before? Mm-hmm. Funny how I have that effect on people. It's something about my face. It's a nice face. You think so? I wouldn't say it if I didn't. And who wouldn't say that about Cary Grant, possibly the most debonair film star ever and entirely self-made? He was born Archie Leach, a sad, neglected working class boy from a troubled family in Bristol, England. How did he become something so completely opposite and do it so successfully on screen for more than 30 years? Film historian Mark Glancy took advantage of Cary Grant's recently released personal archives for his new book, Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend. Mark Glancy is a professor at Queen Mary University of London, and he's on the line. Hello. Thanks for your time. Hello. Thank you for having me, Julie. One thing that's interesting about Cary Grant's origin story is that it wasn't really a secret. Like he, he didn't try to keep it quiet, did he? That's right. A lot of Hollywood stars uh, tried to keep their... Uh, early lives a secret, and they tried to keep their real names a secret. But he was pretty out there with it right from the beginning. There, there were things he held back. He didn't tell uh, the public everything, but he made no secret of the fact that he came from uh, an ordinary background, uh, and he certainly made no secret of the name that his real name was Archie. Hmm. Tell us about the archives he kept. At his house in Beverly Hills, he compiled all sorts of documents and artifacts from his personal life and his career. So he lived in this, he lived in this home in Beverly Hills from about 1946 onward. And he had a fireproof vault built into the house, the kind of, the kind of vault you'd expect to see in a bank that you can walk into. Uh, and it was to keep all of his papers and memorabilia safe. Uh, and clearly he he wanted and needed to do this quite compulsively on some level. And I suppose it has to do with the vast distance he traveled from being Archie Leach to being Cary Grant. The, the archive really documents that process and shows every step of his career, what he was doing, how, how people were responding to him, and also what was going on in his personal life. In, in the papers, there were, I think it was 24 of these enormous, they call them oversized uh, um, scrapbooks. And they're about four times the size of, a, of, a, of an old, size, uh, old style telephone book. Um, so quite hard to pick up actually. And he had 24 of them and every page has clippings. And they, they begin when he is Archie Leach uh, on Broadway in a, in a show called uh, Golden Dawn from 1927. And they carry on right to the end, page after page. Um, and a lot, a lot of the reviews, uh, particularly from the early years, are quite bad. <laughs> you know, he's on Broadway and he's um, in musicals, and so he has to sing, and he's not a good singer. Uh, and so review after review says, you know, Archie Leach is a very handsome man, but he can't sing. <laughs> and he even kept those. He kept copies of the bad he, reviews. He, he kept those, <laughs> and, and people who lived with him over the years said that he... You know, he would occasionally go into the vault and just just have a look through his scrapbooks of an evening. Hmm. Uh, um, so was he was this out of vanity or nostalgia? Like, what was the drive, do you think, that had him so meticulously documenting his 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 life and his fame, really? Well, I think the kind of fame he achieved um, can be frustrating, and of course it's hugely successful, but it can also be frustrating in the sense that there are always people writing about you and <laughs> writing nonsense about you. And so a lot of times he collected articles about himself that he considered inaccurate, um, and he, he marked them up in the margins 
and pointed out what was wrong with them. In some cases, he typed out lists of their errors and then put them in the put them in the scrapbook alongside the the article. <laughs> so I think there was a sense of wanting to set the record straight. There was probably some nostalgia, uh, some setting the record straight. Um, but also, he was he was just a very meticulous man, uh, and so if he was going if he was going to keep this vast collection of, of papers and, and uh, scripts and letters, he was going to do it in very good order. You know, he's known for being such a sharp dresser. I think he was like that in everything he did. So that if you went to his house, you know, the living room would be immaculate, um, the the archive would be immaculate. He would be immaculately dressed. Mm. He was a perfectionist. Mm. I thought that was it was amusing where you mentioned that often, especially when he became um, a star, a bona fide star in Hollywood, that he would write into his contracts that he would provide his own wardrobe if it was a show where it was supposed to be modern day, like it wasn't, you know, a period piece or something, or it wasn't supposed to be like in the military. But if he was just supposed to be a handsome debonair Cary Grant type, he would provide his own clothes because he didn't he didn't trust anybody else <laughs> to dress him right. That's right. Who knows better than Cary Grant how to dress Cary Grant huh. uh, than Cary Grant himself? And so he did it for that reason. But he also did it because that made all of his clothes a tax write-off. <laughs> so, so whenever he went and bought clothing, uh, I, I suppose he had to wear it in the film. He had to wear a suit in the film before he could call it a tax write-off. Uh, but he... Um, that was that was a silver lining. Yeah, he or, was or no advising. No, yeah, no dummy, and uh, he'd come from, as you mentioned, a working class background, poor. Um, but his father, he had inherited this uh, love of, th- at least understanding of the importance of looking good, from his father. Tell us about his dad. Well, actually, his dad's whole family worked in various parts of the clothing industry. Worked as hat makers, tailors, shoemakers. And his dad was a suit presser. So he worked in a clothing factory where when the the suits came off the the factory line, his dad was there pressing them. Uh, And his dad, you can see in old photos, his dad was a very dapper dresser, a very handsome man, careful dresser. Mm. Uh, And his dad dad didn't have a lot of money, so he gave uh, young Archie the advice that rather than buying three cheap suits, you buy one really, really good suit. Uh, and he, he also told him that to dress so that they notice you rather than the clothes. And I think I think that's advice Cary Grant really took to heart because he looks great in clothes, but it's it's Cary Grant that looks great in the clothes. It's not the clothes themselves. He wears mm-hmm. a suit wonderfully, but they, the suit always points out how handsome he is. You don't look at the suit and say, wow, that's tailored well. You mm-hmm. think, you know, there's a guy who looks good in a suit. Mm-hmm. Um only child, Archie? Well, he had, an, he had an older brother who died at a very young age, who died before he was born. Um, and he never knew about that until he was in his 50s. And he was trying to think through, uh, he, was, he was trying to come to terms with his life and what had gone wrong in his life, his personal life. Um, and he discovered that he had had this brother who died uh, as an infant. Uh, and realized that this is what had upset his his mother so much because his mother suffered from um, uh, mental illness. Mm. Right. So, so the story of his mother is uh, one of the great tragedies of his life. What happens? Well, he came home from school one day when he was 11 years old, and his mother simply wasn't there. And he wouldn't see her again for another 20 years. Uh, and now that's hard enough, but making it much harder, I think, was that no one told him where she was. I think there was such a stigma to do with mental illness at the time that they thought it was, they probably thought it was better not to tell him that she'd been committed to what was then called the, the lunatic asylum just down the road from where they were, uh, just down the road from their house. Mm. And so first they told him, oh, your mother's gone on a, on a holiday or a vacation. Uh, and then when she didn't come home and he kept asking questions, they told him that she had died. And it's it's really unclear to me whether or not he would have believed this because there was no funeral and no um, grave to visit. And uh, so I think I think he grew up wondering what had happened and if she had deserted him, basically, and, and why, what he'd done mm. to deserve that. So it's really, really sad, sad situation that left a, 
left a big scar on on him i think um and uh one he didn't one he didn't really get to grips with come to terms with until he was in his 50s and started investigating his past mm. his father pretty much deserted him too uh, and he was left in the care of an alcoholic grandmother who, who really didn't look after him and he started working at the Bristol Empire and then the Bristol Hippodrome, which were music halls. And that's where he found an alternative family. Uh, working as a backstage runner, um, he became, he just fell in love with all of these performers. Uh, and there was, you know, there's a constant overturn of, of, of performers. Every week new performers came in. Uh, and um, they became his, his new family. And eventually he ran off with one of the, one of the groups. Um, left left Bristol at six o'clock in the morning, tiptoed out of the house, uh, and went off and uh, joined this uh, acrobatic troupe that toured uh, the country, that toured Britain, up and down the country uh, for for two years. Uh, and and then, he was a tumbler then, so he was doing flips and climbing on people's shoulders and like that. That that was yes. you know they were they were doing all of those death defying feats as a group of boys basically. That's right. It wasn't. Uh, he wasn't an acrobat in the circus sense. It wasn't uh, the trapeze. It was done in in theater. So it was a lot of gymnastics uh, and doing formations and backflips and what they called exotic dancing, um, which I think meant foreign foreign styles of dancing, like Russian dancing. Uh, and, and Madcap uh, too. I mean, this was sort of it, it, it. He it transitions for him when he gets to the states into a vaudeville performer. Basically, there's a storyline right. and lots of you know, kind of they're kind of clowning. They were clowning, and I think uh, the impact that this has on him is that he becomes very physically fit and very physically adept, and that's that's something we certainly see in his later screen career. How how um, much control he has over his body as a performer. You know, he's very graceful. Um, and he also gets this wonderful comic timing with, with slapstick. Hmm. So at one point then, when he's about 18, the troupe um, goes on a tour of the States. And when the troupe decides is going back to Britain, Archie stays and tries to make it on Broadway. You referenced earlier that he was not a very good singer. But he gets a fair, <sighs> he gets a fair number of parts, right? Basically just because he's so dang good looking. Yes, I mean, it's several years before he gets onto Broadway. He spends, oh, let's see, about six years in vaudeville, uh, touring the United States back and forth, back and forth, um, playing every city and town in the country, I think. Uh, it, was, it was a life of travel from theater to theater. Um, and then he finally was cast in a Broadway show in 1927, and it was clearly his looks that that got him the part <laughs> uh, because the, the con as the contract's written it's you know you will you will be in this show um and you will immediately start taking vocal lessons <laughs> <laughs> oh funny so he has some success but then before too long by 1932 he's showing up on the screen how does that leap happen to to movies in hollywood for cary grant he did okay in broadway but just okay uh, and then after the Wall Street crash in 1929, uh, Broadway slowly begins to dry up. It's not, it's not his fault, it's just there aren't many, many shows. And so he tried his luck in Hollywood. He, he drove out to Hollywood uh, just, just to get, ha try it out, have a screen test, uh, and he made it. He got a screen test, and Paramount liked him and signed him up. Mm. And Mark Glancy, how would you characterize... Um, so if you look at his filmography, he was in eight films in 1932. <laughs> One year, he was in eight different movies. Characterize those those roles, his earliest roles for us. What, what did they tend to have in common? Well, you know, when I when I started on this project, one of the things I was really looking forward to was seeing all these early Cary Grant films that I'd never seen before. There were like 25 films. He made 72 films over his career. Like 25 of them in the 1930s that I'd never seen of, and a lot of them I hadn't heard of. And I knew if I, I knew I could track them down. Uh, so I did, and they're not very good. It was, <laughs> it was quite a disappointment. I mean, it, it, I watched them in chronological order so that I could see him develop as a screen performer. And mm -hmm. that was really interesting because he does get just a little bit better in each part. And you can see every now and then he has a good director, uh, like Joseph von Sternberg with Blonde Venus. 
and he there's a sort of leap forward. Hmm. Um, but a lot of the films, he's he's just playing tall, dark, and handsome. He's just the man on uh, the female star's arm, and he he doesn't have a lot to do. And he he actually looks quite nervous. <laughs> you know, he's not he's not a confident performer at all, which hmm. is so funny given that you know later in his career. He's the epitome of of grace. Mm. So let's listen to a clip from one of these. Um, uh, So you mentioned Blonde Venus. That was Marlena Dietrich. uh, Mae West in She Done Him Wrong. So a a lot of what these early films have in common is that they're melodramatic and um, basically star vehicles for the bombshell leads right yes, and so absolutely. so but he he does seem to be particularly um ill at ease in these may west films because she was like the opposite of the <laughs> cary grant image that we would he would come to embrace right he's debonair and and suave and she was sort of famous as this um body sort of uh saloon singer um anyway so here's one it's called she done him wrong um i think th- what what is the character that cary grant plays in this in this film well he's actually an undercover police officer but she doesn't know that she thinks he's the salvation army worker from next door so here is um one of their early encounters i'll just come up sometimes see me i'm home every evening yeah but i'm busy every evening busy so what are you trying to do insult me no no not at all i'm just busy that's all you see, we're holding meetings in Jacobson's Hall every evening. Anytime you have a moment to spare, I'll be glad to have you drop in. You're more than welcome. I heard you. <laughs> but you ain't kidding me any. You know, I met your kind before. Why don't you come up sometime, huh? Well, I... Don't be afraid. I won't tell. <laughs> but, uh... Come up. I'll tell your fortune. Oh, you can be had. <laughs> All right, so Cary Grant, a little stiff there, but that's his role, so I guess it works in in She Done Him Wrong. She's like a cat toying with a mouse (laughs) with him, you know? She's just just all over him. And that final line, you can be had, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, um, it's, it's, for the time, it's quite quite hard-hitting. So it's important to mention, Mark Glancy, that um, in these early years, the first five years or so of his career, 1932 to 37-ish, he is on contract with a studio, with Paramount, right? Which meant that he had, that he was in a lot of movies and he basically had no say over the kinds of roles he took or was given. He had no control over any aspect of his career. And that that was true of everyone under contract. That wasn't something specific to him. It was just the way the system worked at the time was that actors, stars went under contract to a studio and they did everything for them. They didn't work at other studios and the studio assigned them to roles and created publicity around them and just really controlled every aspect of their career mm. including his name it was the it was the studio that insisted he no longer be called Archibald Leach or Archie Leach that just wasn't going to work that's right and I think he I think he quite happily left it behind I don't <laughs> think they had to press him in that uh, the from what he said um the story goes that the head of the studio said to him look nobody's going to come see a film uh, that stars Archie Leach. So we have to do something about that. But he did not protest. Uh, and he helped them come up with the name Cary Grant. They all sat around and came up with the name Cary Grant. Speaking with Mark Glancy, who is a film historian, uh, professor at Queen Mary University of London, author of a delightful new book called Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend, draws on Cary Grant's extensive personal archives Um, When we come back here on Top of Mind after a very quick break, we'll talk about the breakthrough role that made Cary Grant into a romantic comedy star. And from there, of course, he had Hitchcock and he had the romantic leading man. So we'll talk about how he got there from his very um, humble beginnings. I'm Julie Rose. Stay with us. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. It's good to have you with us today. I'm Julie Rose. We're talking about maybe the most debonair film star ever to grace the screen, Cary Grant. I'm speaking with Mark Glancy, who is author of a new book called Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend. Glancy is a film historian and professor at Queen Mary University of London. 
Professor Glancy, after those um, first five years on contract at Paramount, doing whatever film the studio deemed him um, suitable for, his contract ends. Tell us what happens at that point. Well, at that point, he left Paramount. And I think that if he hadn't had some good luck, if he hadn't had some good connections in Hollywood uh, and had good luck in just what was what was coming down the pipeline, I think he'd be forgotten. You know, I don't think he did anything in those first five years that we would really look back and remember him for. So, you know, there are 25 films and none of them are really that remarkable. But suddenly he makes he makes three films in a row, uh, Topper, The Awful Truth and Bringing Up Baby that are all screwball comedies. And with the help of some good directors, he just finds his feet and invents this whole persona uh, that's going to sustain him throughout the rest of his career for 50 more films. Mm. Uh, And um, he overnight, he becomes one of the most bankable Hollywood stars. And and of course, he'll stay that way uh, to the end of his career. What's the persona that he um, that, that really sort of makes him a star? The persona is this debonair, handsome man about town. That's one side of it, and, and of course we all we all know that about him. But I think what the crucial element that comes in in screwball comedy is that he's he's willing to play the clown, he's willing to do slapstick humor, and he's willing to be the butt of slapstick humor. So I think we we he's he's so. He's so debonair and so perfect that we would probably dislike him if that was all there was to him. We'd probably <laughs> resent him for it. But because he's willing to do pratfalls and have, you know, have leopards chase him and, and all the other things that happen to him, uh, he becomes likable. Mm. So he's a bankable star. By the time he's doing um, His Girl Friday with Rosalind Russell and Philadelphia Story with uh, Catherine Hepburn... Yes, this is his. This is really his heyday. I mean, he'll he'll have a successful career through the nineteen sixties, but in this period, in the late thirties and early forties, he makes film after film, which is just remarkable. Each each one of them a treasure. Hmm. All right, so let's listen to a clip from um, His Girl Friday. Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell they're divorced. She's been gone for a while, and she's come back. They're both newspaper reporters as well. Well, well, how long is it? How long is what? You know what. How long is it since we've seen each other? Oh, well, let's see. Uh, I spent six weeks in Reno, then Bermuda. Oh, about four months, I guess. Seems like yesterday to me. Maybe it was yesterday, Hildy. Been seeing me in your dreams? No, no, Mama doesn't dream about you anymore, Wally. You wouldn't know the old girl now. Ah, uh, yes, I would. I'd know you any time, any, any place. place. Anywhere. Ah, you're repeating yourself, Walter. That's the speech you made the night you proposed. Yeah, I know that you still remember it. Of course, I remember it. If I didn't remember it, I wouldn't have divorced you. Yes, I wish you hadn't done that, Hilly. Done what? Divorce me. Makes a fellow lose all faith in himself. Gives him a... Almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh, now, look, Junior, that's what divorces are for. A clip there from His Girl Friday, uh, Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant. Um, wh- what is it about these films in this era, His Girl Friday, The Philadelphia Story, Bringing Up Baby, that you think is is so enduring that people today talk about these films as some of the gra- greatest romantic comedies ever? I think there's a there's a freshness to them. Uh, when you see them, uh, they come across as being fresh and spontaneous and um, the characters really seem to be uh, involved with one another, engaging with one another. Um, and that that came from the fact that he insisted on an element of improvisation on the set. Um, So, you know, he's working with good people, there's no doubt about that. But they would also sit down with the script in the morning and think through how they were going to play it and change it uh, if they came up with something better. Um, So with His Girl Friday in particular, they were writing new dialogue every day. Um, and, and Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell were surprising each other with new dialogue. Mm. They would go home at night and, and think of something that they could, you know, lob at, at each other and then come in and, uh, uh, you know, do something that the other did not expect. Um, and I think, I think you can really see that in, in the interaction. It seems very, it's full of vitality. Cary Grant was funny then. He, wa- he wasn't just good at delivering funny lines. Oh, he, yes, he was a uh, genuinely funny man. I mean, there the, are the different stories about him on the set. A lot of people comment on how anxious he was on the set, that he was very 
nervous and worried about his performance and, and you know, he would be clutching his script right up until the time uh, the cameras rolled. And other people uh, commented on how much fun he was uh, and that he would tell jokes, he would sing Cockney songs between takes, he would rib people. Um, Rosalind Russell tells a story about how they, they played all of one scene uh, in which she had her back to him and then she turned around and he had taken his trousers off. He was standing there in his underwear. Uh, and uh, just just to sort of get, give her the giggles and, and keep that freshness going. Uh, you know, they had to do a retake, of course. But... Uh, I think there is a, a real vitality to the films that comes from his insistence on uh, on being playful. Isn't it strange, though, how he um, how he can have that side, but simultaneously also be this very sort of debonair, masculine? I mean, you get these two sides. Like, there's this one film, um, "I Was a Male War Bride," where we get him in drag, basically. For- <laughs> the yes. show. In fact, I have a clip. Let's listen to it. So, I mean, this is 1949. The premise is that he's a French army officer. It doesn't sound French at all, but whatever. Um, and he's fallen in love with an American army corps officer. She's a woman played by Anne Sheridan. And in order to get back to the United States, he the, the, the law only allows war brides to come home with soldiers, but he's a man, so he has to be a, a bride in order to get on the boat um, to go back to the States. So she dresses him up. At one point, the, bo- the boat's about to leave. He's been kicked off the boat because he's not a woman. You're not a war bride. You can't, even though he tried to claim he was. It was totally emasculating. He's like, I'm, I've had it. I'm done with this. And she says, do you love me? You got to trust me. And she takes him over to the stables and starts inspecting the uh, the tails on the horses. Let, let's listen. What are you doing? Come on, Henry, lean down. Uh, Come on, lean down close. I want to see something. Uh-huh. That goes perfect. With what? Give me your knife. Oh, no, you're not going to. I won't do it. Oh, Henry, this will make a perfectly good wig. I won't do it. And we've got the clothes right here. Catherine, I will not do it. But, Henry, you said you loved me. Well, I'm not so sure now. And, and you promised. So, come on, give me your knife. Uh, come on, Henry, there's not much time. Well, this is ridiculous. Catherine, can't you at least cut it off the mane? Henry, you're taking this much too personally. Now stand so no one can see what I'm doing. So we get these precious, brilliant moments where he is literally wearing this horse's tail on his head. And he is, suffice to say, not a very attractive woman. <laughs> in drag. I mean, why, why do you think he was so willing to, um, you know, to make such a fool of himself, given that his his image was so masculine and so debonair? I think it made him relatable. I think he knew that um, people would side with the fellow who takes the fall, um, that they wanted to side with him because everyone wants to think that they're like the the, the most handsome star or the most beautiful star, but um, it makes him even more relatable if he is humiliated in some way, humbled in, in some way. Um, so the, the line in that clip, couldn't you at least take it off the mane? It's, it's so great because she's cutting through the tail and putting the, uh, putting the tail on him. Yeah. You write in the book, Mark Glancy, um, that Cary Grant's ability to embody a host of seemingly contradictory qualities that is being both British and American, working class and upper class, masculine and feminine, elegant and comical, lies at the core of his appeal across many decades. Did Cary Grant not have any any competitors when it came to his breadth during that period of Hollywood? In the early days, his competitors were people who were more uh, firmly established in him. So Paramount saw him as a second string Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper was the much bigger star. And then once he became the, um, the king of screwball comedy, um, there were all sorts of, of other Cary Grants. There were lesser Cary Grants around. So people like Ray Milland and Robert Montgomery um, got, his, got his cast-offs. Um. The 1950s, though, are um, a slump for Cary Grant's career. Um, Why is that? What happens during that period? Well, it's the early 1950s. Um, I think he I think he got too comfortable making these um, black and white screwball comedies and uh, audiences 
tired of them or weren't, weren't really interested in them anymore. And at the same time, there's a whole new generation of actors coming up like um, Montgomery Clift and Marlon Brando and Jimmy, I'm sorry, um, James Dean, um, who uh, brought in method acting and seemed so much earthier and more compelling and, and simply simply something new, you know, something new for a new generation of film goers. Uh, and he looked at method acting and said, uh, no, that's, that's not for me. <laughs> that's not what I do. Um, and he actually thought about retiring from the screen. And it took Hitchcock to get him back. So he didn't make a film in the, for about two years in the early 1950s, which was a long time for him <laughs> to, be, to be not working. And then Hitchcock showed him the script for To Catch a Thief and promised him that it would be filmed in the south of France and that his co-star would be Grace Kelly. And he was in. Mm. It's like, I can, I can do that. <laughs> oh, lovely day. Have you ever seen any place in the world more beautiful? Just look at the colors of the sea down there in the sky and those little pink and green buildings on the hill. Think of all those roofs you could climb over. Who did you call me? Roby. John Roby. One of the world's cleverest jewel thieves known as the cat. I read all about you in the Paris paper. You may have read about somebody called the cat, I but... thought you said you were hungry. I am. For the picnic baskets in the trunk. Is that how he transitions to romantic leading man, when you start to get uh, an affair to remember and charade? And there's, a, there's another one called Indiscreet that uh, I, particularly, I particularly like. Um, these sort of lush, late 1950s romantic dramas. That, they have comedy elements, but they're very romantic and they have elements of melodrama. Um, I think part of that was Hitchcock's influence. That With To Catch a Thief, Hitchcock showed him how to reinvent the Cary Grant film, and that was... Uh, to go film on some spectacular location in widescreen, in Technicolor, with a beautiful co-star and have this very romantic edge to it. And so that works in a thriller like To Catch a Thief, but it also works in the kind of lush melodramas that were around in the late 1950s, like An Affair to Remember, Indiscreet, and so on. So here's a clip from Affair to Remember. This is Cary Grant then and Deborah Kerr. They've met on a on a boat and they make a plan to meet up again in six months if everything goes according, it goes well for them. Here, I started to write it out. Should I read it now? Mm-hmm. All right. Darling, that's me? Mm-hmm. You have a date, my beloved, July the 1st at 5 o'clock. But you don't say where. Well, you name the place and I'll obey. I don't know, I can't think. How about the top of the Empire State Building? Oh, yes, that's perfect. It's the nearest thing to heaven we have in New York. The 102nd floor. And don't forget to take the elevator. (laughs) No, I won't. And 1963 is Charade, which is not a Hitchcock film, but could be. It's very Hitchcockian. Um, And this is, of course, Audrey Hepburn. This is the Cary Grant film that I, born in the mid-70s, was most familiar with. Um, The two of them have such great chemistry. She utters this famous line to the Cary Grant uh, character, but she may as well just be saying it to Cary Grant. Do you know what's wrong with you? No, what? Nothing. He, uh, in these romantic films, uh, start opposite very young women. Why was it believable that a Cary Grant in his 50s, 60s, was going to be able to get Audrey Hepburn, who <laughs> was like in well, her he, 20s, an ingenue? He didn't think it was believable. Uh, it was the producers who thought it was believable. And apparently it was audiences who thought it was believable because the, the films were, were big hits. But it, it bugged him. Uh, he didn't want to look like a dirty old man chasing after these much younger women on screen. So Charade was was rewritten uh, to make it clear that she was chasing after him. Mm. He's the reluctant one. And that's why she has that comment. She <laughs> says to him about, you know what's wrong with you? Nothing. Mm. Uh, to make it very clear that she, um, she desires him uh, and has to talk him round <laughs> to uh, <laughs> having an affair with her. Cary Grant retires from filmmaking in 1966, so just a few years after Charade. Why? Well, he was, a, he was afraid of, of getting old on screen. Uh, he thought that his kinds of roles in these, his, in these romantic films uh, just didn't suit an older, an older uh, star. 
Um, and he was he was very self-conscious about the way he was aging on screen. Everyone kept telling him how great he looked, and he did look great. But of course, he could see the difference. He could see um, that he was getting older, and thought that he thought that the audience wouldn't wouldn't like that. Hmm. So there's there's that side to it. There's a professional side to it, but there's also a personal side. That is, he had his first child at the age of 62. In 1966, as he made his last film, um, his his uh, wife Diane Cannon was was pregnant with their first child, um, and once he had uh, Jennifer, his daughter, um, he decided he was never going to waste time on a film set again, and he didn't need to. He was a millionaire. Um, right towards the end of his life, so he lives to be 80, and he uh, he dies of a stroke. Actually, backstage. Um, in his final um, bout of performing, tell us about the onstage um, conversations with Cary Grant that he was doing right at the end of his life. Well, I think he got restless in retirement. So, you know, towards the end of those 20 years, um, he decided to go out on the road and do an evening with Cary Grant where he um, took questions from the audience. He didn't want to perform. That would make him too anxious. So they, they showed a... Um, a reel of film clips from his career uh, to get the audience going. And then the audience was simply allowed to ask him questions uh, and he would answer them and be funny and be charming and tell them about his career. Uh, and everyone had a great time. Um, so he, he, did, he, he did this sporadically. He, it wasn't like a permanent tour that he was on. He just did them whenever he wanted to. Uh, and interestingly, he did them in all sorts of off- the main off the beaten track places so you know he wasn't playing radio city music hall in new york um uh, or even in san francisco or los angeles he played these small towns the kind of small towns he had visited when he was touring in vaudeville uh, and it was in one of those theaters in davenport iowa uh that he um yet he died backstage just before a performance or he had a heart attack backstage just before a performance and died later that night in hospital so Cary Grant never actually won an Oscar. He was nominated, um, never actually won an Oscar for his acting. He won an honorary Oscar in 1970. Um, what, why was he not fully, do you think, was he, do you think, appreciated to the extent during his life and his active career as he was in hindsight? I think he's much more, um, he's much more admired as an actor today than he was then. I think back then there was the idea that he was playing himself, that Cary Grant just walked onto the set and was Cary Grant for a while on set and then went home and continued being Cary Grant. Uh, and people didn't really think about uh, the technique involved in being Cary Grant on the set. Uh, and in and, and those days, the kinds of roles that won Oscars and um, respect for acting, the kind of roles played you know, by Laurence Olivier in the 30s and 40s, maybe, and, and by Marlon Brando in the 50s, this idea of serious acting. Um, and I think what he does is much more finely tuned, uh, much more subtle, um, and much more to do with acting for the camera. Uh, that's where his real skill lies, that you can, if you just watch his face and his eyes in particular, the whole film seems to play out across his, across his eyes. He can tell the whole story in, in close-up. He's an amazing uh, actor for the camera. And why is, why is his story important to the history of film? Well, I mean, I think his, his story is important um, beyond the history of film. I mean, he is, he is the 20th century in, in so many respects. He, I mean, he starts off in this, uh, the end of the Victorian era in complete poverty and uh, with, I mean, most, most kids of his class and background had no chance in life. But, uh, you know, the better side of the 20th century is that people did develop more, did get more chances. They did become, many people became more affluent. Um, and um, he becomes a kind of symbol of the self-made man and what you can be, at least in Britain and America, uh, how, you can, how you can improve yourself um, and uh, live life uh, to the best of your ability. Um, so I think there's, there's that aspect. That's, I think we all key into that part of his life. Um, in terms of cinema, I think, he, I think he's come to represent a whole era, a whole classical Hollywood era uh, in which... Um, you know, that kind of grace uh, and smoothness um, and repartee uh, is, is so delightful and so, and so different from what we have now. 
Mark Glancy is a professor of film history at Queen Mary University of London. His new book is Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend. Professor Glancy, thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. This is a curated episode of Top of Mind from the Archive. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's great having you with us. The U.S. military is actively developing ways to hack into the brains of soldiers to make them better at the work of warfighting. This means, well, it might mean, for example, implanting a device in a soldier's brain so he or she can control a drone with their thoughts. And the video feed from that drone might stream right into the soldier's optic nerve. Crazy, right? Or imagine soldiers on a battlefield communicating telepathically through a similar device implanted in each of their brains. As the military moves forward with experiments like this, it is also funding a team of bioethicists to make sure that they're thinking through all the pros and cons of creating super soldiers, of experimenting on soldiers to develop this technology. Jonathan Moreno is one of these ethics experts. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's with us now. Professor Moreno, thanks for your time today. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Julie. Expand for us on a possible technology that the Defense Department is looking at that you think has potential, but also is potentially very problematic. Well, there's an idea that's been around for a while, um, which is putting sensors in a soldier's helmet. And the so- and the sensors would help somebody somewhere else, a control panel somewhere, see if the soldier is undergoing a lot of stress. You think of somebody um, you know, who's in a, on a mountain somewhere, perhaps alone, uh, a special forces operative. And perhaps there would be a way to uh, keep track of how much stress that person is under and maybe actually sending some signals into that person's head to downregulate their stress hormones. Hmm. That's that, one. Yeah, that's how, does, I mean, that sounds... <laughs> actually, like it could be really helpful for the soldier. <laughs> if it's... Yes, and I, and I think that is something we need to uh, keep in mind, no pun intended, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, a lot of this stuff really is, in, is going to be intended to help people do their jobs uh, more safely without putting themselves or others at risk. At the same time, there is, as you said in your intro, a problem with doing experiments in our warfighters, right? Because nobody wants to be considered a human guinea pig least of all men and women in uniform. And there is a pretty tough history that we can talk about going back to the, certainly at least to the 1930s uh, about gas experiments in, in, in gas chambers with, with sailors. But um, the additional problem with people in uniform is that you know, they do sign away a lot of their rights when they become part of the military, the rights that you and I have. They are being sent into dangerous situations to protect you and me. So, what does that mean when it comes to figuring out what kinds of dr- drugs or devices will help them do their jobs? The consent issues are a little complicated with people in uniform, right? I mean, you and I you know, are going to be asked for our permission to be in an experiment, but the status of a warfighter is a little more complicated. Are they not asked for their consent? Are they, is it, you know, that's an order, soldier? You will have this thing implanted in your nervous system. Yeah, so that is a great question. Um, there are two things that you cannot be ordered to, to do uh, in our military. One is you can't be ordered to do something that is illegal. And you also can't be ordered to be in an experiment. So there are, there are rules around this. But at the same time, if you think about it, there are a lot of new items that a warfighter uses in the field that may not have been you know, fully tested in every situation. So there is a certain amount of give there. If you just think about you know, test pilots, for example, are they human guinea pigs? Um, or are they doing their jobs trying to figure out how, to, how a new weapon works and, and how a new system works and how they can work with it? It's do, not that easy. Do, do members of the military have the same um, privacy protections? Well, when they're, you know, so I'm thinking, for example, of like you were describing the helmet that's monitoring. I mean, let's say that that helmet or some implant could actually, to some extent, monitor the thoughts of a of a of a soldier. Is 
you know, so long as they're functioning as a soldier, do they even have a right to the privacy of their thoughts? So that is exactly one of the questions that we're going to be tackling, uh, I think, ultimately, in our in our group that's working on this, uh, because on the one hand, you know, you, you do want to think that your thoughts are private. On the other hand, you also have an obligation to to your job and to your brothers and sisters in uniform to make sure you can do your job well. So this is this is not, I think, going to be an easy question to sort out. But I also think we should keep in mind that um, a lot of the ideas that we might have about mind reading and so forth, you know, that I love science fiction, I've been reading <laughs> this stuff probably longer than you've been alive, I'm guessing. Um, a lot of that really is fictional. It's going to be much, much harder to do this than the science fiction writers, you know, might like to think. So um, there are going to be surprises along the way. I think one of the areas that is really uh, going to be interesting is um, what happens when you take some of these devices away from somebody who's been in the military. Mm -hmm. We know that many people in the armed forces, you know, you take their weapon away the first because they're uh, being detached from the military. Um, the first thing they do when they got home is go buy a weapon uh, because they feel kind of naked without it. So what happens when you have these, these brain technologies that are helping to keep track of how they're doing and maybe modifying their their thought patterns or their behavior, enhancing them in some way. What happens when you take that stuff away? And that's not entirely science fiction because there are, I mean, outside of the military, have, hasn't something like this been done with people um, who have epilepsy? Like there, you know, there's an implant yes. that can warn you, oh, here comes a seizure. Yes, uh, that's exactly right. Deep brain stimulation has been used for a number of years to kind of help modify the and manage the symptoms of Parkinson's. It's also being used experimentally with people with other uh, disorders, even disorders perhaps like intractable depression, depression that doesn't respond to mm. drugs and therapy. Uh, and that is, that is certainly true. What's really interesting is that um, the people who, who have these devices implanted, they have very different reactions when they're taken away. Mm. Some people really miss them, uh, but some people are actually perfectly happy not to have them. They don't feel like they're quite themselves when they've got uh, this device in their heads. Other people feel no, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more like myself. I'm more able to do, uh, to express myself, to do what I want to do with this thing. So it's really kind of unpredictable how people respond. Professor Moreno, in order for uh, a procedure to be ethical in the military, would the implant or the medication, the alteration need to clearly benefit the soldier's quality of life? Or would it just be enough? I could think of a lot of things that the military might want to do that would make the person a better soldier, but might not necessarily have obvious benefits for that soldier's sense of well-being or that soldier's, you know, uh, quality of life. No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the first thing that you're responsible for is your job in the military, and you have to be able to do your job properly. At the same time, you don't want to put people in a position where they are skeptical the, uh, of your of your goals for them, uh, they, people have to have confidence in their commanders uh, and in the policies that their commanders set for them. So there is a level of trust that's required of people who are in the armed forces for for you know the orders that they're getting. And this is very sensitive stuff. We actually, Julie, we're going through a, a kind of different version of this right now with regard to COVID nineteen vaccines. The military is not required, as you probably know to take them yet. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's not clear when they will be required. I think probably after the, the, the a vaccine is, is fully approved by the Food and Drug Administration, which, isn't, which it isn't yet, it'll be, it'll be required of people in the military to get that vaccine as it's required for them to get lots of other vaccines. Why is the military actively funding and engaging with ethicists like yourself, Professor Moreno, when to some extent, your job is to tap the brakes on, yeah, it, on it's stuff. True. It's true. And, you know, uh, people who do bioethics um, have not a great reputation with some with some scientists who feel we're a pain in the neck. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I understand that. Um, but what we're what we're trying to do is help the Defense Department develop conventions and standards for dealing with these problems. You know, most of the talk so far about uh, artificial intelligence 
uh, in the military has been about the level of trust that commanders have in these systems. We're coming along saying, well, you really also need to think about the level of trust that you know, the, the man and woman in, in the field uh, further down in the ranks has in these systems. That's really important too. So I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give some props to the Defense Department for for funding a bunch of ethicists, as you say, who could just be a pain in the neck. <laughs> but I think they've learned from history, and they've learned that you know there have been a lot of bad episodes with people in uniform and being required to do things that have not only hurt them but really not helped them do their jobs. What about the sense of responsibility for his or her actions? Do you think that if if we begin altering? the mental or cognitive or physical abilities through technology of soldiers that we that we change sort of who's responsible if something goes wrong you know this is a a a very big question that people have already asked about just the use of artificial intelligence and all these weapon systems and who who is ultimately responsible and what uh what the defense department has said so far is that uh, really the commander is responsible end of story the commander is ultimately responsible for what happens uh, under his or her command. So that, at least according to the official position, that that doesn't change. And and you know we've I, this is not a really completely new. There are already lots of uh, AI systems that are in use right now in in drones, but also in aircraft that people are flying, and they're also already getting a lot of information that um, they they could not digest themselves, that, that is digested for them by computers, onboard computers. Um, and then they you know, act based on, algorithm. they have to trust and then act based on that artificial intelligence. Exactly. They're, 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 they, you know, they are getting lots of information and they're evaluating their options, but they are still obligated to be uh, what we call uh, on the loop, that is to say, or even in the loop. They have to be, uh, they have to be ultimately responsible for making the decision about whether to pull a trigger or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, but what the Pentagon is going through right now and has been for about at least 10 years uh, is uh, how much autonomy do you give these systems when human beings can't follow the, the tempo of modern warfare anymore? Modern warfare is so fast and there are already so many artificial intelligence systems involved in, in these operations that you, you you have a real pressure on on us to keep track of what what's happening on on digesting the information. Human beings just can't do that without the help of other of these machines. Jonathan Moreno is a professor of medical ethics, health policy, history, and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's a co-investigator on some work funded by the Department of Defense exploring ethical issues around experimenting on soldiers. Thanks a lot for your time today, Professor Moreno. Thank you, Joe. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. And that's it for today's episode of Carefully Curated Conversations from the Archive. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.